Hello, bonjour, entente. I'm Paula Simons, and this is Alberta Unbound. Welcome to part two of the annual Merv Leach QC Memorial Lecture in Constitutional Law, which is hosted every year by the University of Alberta and the University of Calgary, and which was written and presented this year by me. In the first part of the lecture, which I hope you've already heard, I talked about Alberta's political and legal history and some of the strange interlocking coincidences that shaped the evolution of our Constitution. In part two of the lecture, I discuss some more recent Senate history and the impact of Senate reform on the upper chamber's role as a guardian of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. I called this chapter of my lecture, My Life as an Amateur Gardener. Thomas Jefferson, one of the drafters of the American Declaration of Independence, once wrote to a friend, the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. It is its natural manure. Happily, taking care of Canada's living tree requires a lot less melodrama and a lot less manure, but it does take all of us to nurture our tree and keep it healthy. Now, does the living tree principle mean we can ignore the text of the BNA Act, the Alberta Act, the Constitution Act, whenever it becomes inconvenient? Of course not. But it frees us from the tyranny of literal originalism and allows us the privilege to exercise some common sense. In the United States, people often fetishize and romanticize the authors of the American Constitution. They place inordinate emphasis on what the framers might have meant, trying to read the minds of founding fathers such as James Madison and Alexander Hamilton. I sometimes wonder if American jurists of a certain type ought to be holding seances or bringing in Ouija boards and crystal balls to better interpret messages from the other side of the veil. In Canada, where our Charter of Rights and Freedoms is just 40 years old, we're less tempted to engage in hagiography. No one so far has written a rap musical about Roy Romano and Jean Chrétien. Many of the people who worked on our constitution are still very much alive, and even the ones who are no longer with us are still very present in our memories. Our constitution was written and shaped not by saints and philosophers, but by politicians and public servants, lawyers and judges, working out practical realpolitik compromises to help govern a diverse and complicated confederation. Moses didn't bring the charter down from the mountain on stone tablets. It's a living, evolving work in progress, as I'm here to testify. I was sworn into the Senate of Canada in late October of 2018, but that's not actually true. I'm not a religious person. I was never sworn into the Senate at all. I affirmed my oath while holding this copy of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the document I pledged to defend. I had only been a senator for a couple of weeks when the Senate faced a small constitutional crisis, and I was called to make good on my vow. It was just a month before Christmas, and workers at Canada Post launched rotating strikes. They weren't stopping the mail completely, but they were certainly creating stress and uncertainty for businesses shipping Christmas purchases and for ordinary Canadians who wanted to send holiday cards and packages. But in an era of email and courier services, maybe a postal strike wasn't quite the economic or social catastrophe it might have been a generation earlier. And postal workers had a long list of significant grievances that they insisted were not being addressed. The Trudeau government nonetheless passed legislation to order the union members back to work. This was an emergency and the Senate, which has just risen, was abruptly recalled for an emergency debate. It was at that moment that I, a raw rookie, truly came to appreciate the intellectual caliber of my Senate colleagues and of Senate discourse. 
For once in my life, I was speechless. I just listened as we tackled two separate but related constitutional questions. Was it constitutional for the government to order an end to a strike that had scarcely begun? Or did that violate the charter rights of union members? And if ordering workers back was a constitutional infringement, was it a serious enough violation of the charter for us as the unelected upper house to veto the will of the elected MPs? There was intense scrutiny on the Senate for another reason. When Justin Trudeau became prime minister in 2016, he had launched an audacious round of Senate reform, a subversive, quiet revolution of our upper chamber that did not require constitutional amendment nor provincial approval. Two years earlier, the Supreme Court had told Stephen Harper in its reference decision that electing senators would require a constitutional amendment, which would in turn require the consent of seven provinces representing at least 50% of the population. The court had further ruled that abolishing the Senate would require the unanimous consent of all 10 provinces, the House of Commons, and the Senate itself. So thanks to Stephen Harper's reference questions, Trudeau knew all the things he couldn't do. So he simply stopped making patronage appointments. First, he ejected all the sitting liberal senators from his caucus. Then he set up a panel of arm's length experts, a panel like the sort that nominates judges. He allowed any Canadian citizen over the age of 30 to apply for the job of senator in an open merit-based competition. And then he appointed everyone who came out of that process as an independent so that now there are no liberal senators at all. Now, maybe that doesn't sound radical to you, but once the majority of senators were freed from party discipline or party hierarchies, once senators weren't hand-picked party loyalists, but instead ornery free thinkers, the Senate had a new credibility and a new power because the government couldn't rely on the new appointees to be a rubber stamp and vote the party line. The Senate does have the right and indeed the responsibility to veto blatantly on constitutional legislation. But it rarely uses that power. The question was, would we do so in the case of the back-to-work order for postal workers? The senators who took to the floor that weekend for debate were a remarkable lot. They included Mark Gold, a former professor of constitutional law at McGill University and a professional mediator. Murray Sinclair, the respected First Nations judge who led the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Pierre Delfon, a former judge of the Quebec Court of Appeal, also an experienced mediator. Francis Lankin, a one-time union leader who would go on to hold several senior, senior cabinet positions in the government of Bob Bray. Tony Dean, the former Deputy Minister of Labour in the Ontario government and the former head of the Ontario Public Service. Diane Belmar, an acclaimed professor of labor economics, to give just a few examples. Also among my new colleagues was Senator Howard Weston, a former federal court judge. I felt like I was back on the court making a decision, he said in his speech to the chamber. Of course, I read the Saskatchewan Federation of Labor case, and I considered the Canada Post 2011 decision, and the school board case of Ontario, the BC hospital case, and I think I read some other cases on the right to strike and section 2D of the charter. Yeah, he just, he just whipped that all out in passing, talking without notes, talking about how he had prepped for the debate, thinking of all the constitutional precedents as though he were back on the bench. And in that moment, 
I felt sort of the way I felt the first time my parents gave me the keys to their car and told me to drive my little brother to hockey practice. What was I doing here? Who gave me the keys to the car? Who thought I should be fiddling under the hood of the Constitution? When were they going to realize that my appointment had been a terrible mistake and that I wasn't worthy to be here? Feeling the weight of all this on my shoulders, I decided for once in my life to stay quiet and to bring to the debate the one gift that I did have, my skill as a reporter. This emergency debate happened over the weekend, and there were almost no reporters, I think none, in the Senate press gallery. And at that time, in November of 2018, we weren't yet live streaming the Senate. You could, if you were a real political wonk, listen to an audio feed of the debate, but that was it. And so I started to live tweet. It was a natural response. After all, I had live tweeted Edmonton City Council meetings and school board meetings and many debates in the Alberta legislature. I actually had no idea if I were allowed to tweet from inside the chamber, but I figured if I weren't supposed to be tweeting, someone would tell me soon enough. They didn't. So for hours, I summarized the debate for a growing online audience, and they were eager to know what was happening since I was pretty much the only source of information. I listened to Pierre Delphont and Murray Sinclair, deeply experienced former judges, arguing passionately against the constitutionality of the back-to-work order. Then I listened to Howard Wetston and Mark Gold, equally qualified experts, arguing with elegant specificity that this bill was indeed constitutional and abridged no charter rights. This debate took place in the old center block, in one of the last weeks that we would be sitting in that historic building before it was mothballed for a decade-long renovation. And it was freezing inside, literally, as snow blew right inside the hallways through the old-fashioned fake Gothic casement windows. How was I going to vote? As I walked the windy halls, I finally had a brainwave. I did what I'd done so many times in the past as a journalist. I called Eric Adams. Vice Dean of the University of Alberta Law School. After all, I reasoned he was a professor of constitutional law and a professor of labor law and labor history. Professor Adams kindly walked me through all the labor, lore, the constitutional conundrums, and I was profoundly grateful to have such a great source at my disposal. Although, like a good rabbi, he didn't actually tell me what I should do. It was more equasive on the one hand, on the other hand. And then, it was finally time for a vote, a standing vote where each senator in the chamber had to rise to say yay or nay. Because I was a very new senator, my seat was way, way, way far away from the speaker. And I would be one of the last ISG senators, the last independent senators called to vote. That gave me a unique liberty. I could see how others were voting before I did. And I could see that if I voted against the back to work legislation, it would still pass. I could vote my conscience freely in the sure and certain knowledge that I personally would not be provoking a constitutional crisis. And so I stood with the nays and voiced my opposition. In truth, it didn't take much bravery because by that time, I knew my vote would be largely symbolic. The final free vote with no one whipped in the chamber was 53 to 25 with four abstentions. But the Senate had done its job debating well and voting freely, hashing out all the charter issues and all the public policy ones too. When it was all over and I was sitting in my desk somewhat shell-shocked, Pierre Delphon, who was always so courtly and elegant, 
leaned over and shook my hand. This was back in the before times when we still shook hands. We were on the right side of history, he assured me. And I felt just slightly queasy because there it was, history, constitutional history. And I was somehow falling through the looking glass, no longer an outside observer of the political process, but one of the people in the business of history making. Standing in the Senate, right where Emily and Nellie and Henrietta and Irene and Louise had fought so hard for me to be, right where Lord Sankey had confirmed that I belonged. Here I was, a fallible, flawed human being, just like all the fallible, flawed human beings who'd made constitutional history before me. Let me remind you of the ringing words of Sir Lyman Poor Duff, that long ago Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Remember what he said? I will do my Sir Lyman Poor Duff voice. The duty of the court in every case is loyally to endeavor to ascertain the intention of the legislature and to ascertain that intention by reading and interpreting the language which the Senate itself has selected for the purpose of expressing it. That presupposes that the legislature has an intention as though a legislature were some sort of being with a mind of its own, that it acts with clear intent and selects its language with exquisite care to last down the ages. I am here to tell you that this is not always the case, that sometimes amendments get drafted on the back of a napkin or hashed out in the Senate break room, and that legislation is a kind of ad hoc collective creation. Let me give the example of last year's Bill C-7, which amended Canada's medical aid and dying legislation to bring it closer to the Supreme Court's ruling in the Carter decision. In 2015, let's recall, the Supreme Court ruled that the provisions of the criminal code which made medical aid in dying illegal were unconstitutional. The court said that the provision violated the charter rights of Canadians under Section 7 to life, liberty, and security of the person. The Trudeau government eventually legalized MAID, but only in very limited circumstances when death was reasonably foreseeable. But that wasn't what the Supreme Court had said in Carter. The case specifically involved the circumstances of two British Columbia women, Kay Carter, who had suffered from severe and painful spinal stenosis, and Gloria Taylor, who had had arterial lateral sclerosis. Neither woman had been dying. Their deaths were not reasonably foreseeable, but their suffering had been, in the words of the Carter decision, intolerable and irremediable. That was the test. So the government's legislation was challenged in court. The courts ruled that the new law was still unconstitutional. Bill C-7 was an effort to bring the law into clearer conformity with the Carter decision, and that was the bill the Senate had to debate. By this time in 2021, the independent Senate experiment was much further evolved. Under the new merit-based appointment system, well, it turns out when you appoint by merit, there were suddenly a lot more women in the Senate. The gender split is almost exactly 50-50. And I'd like to thank Lord Sankey and the famous five for that. I think they'd be delighted by that demography. We had by then formed ourselves into four distinct groups, the ISG or Independent Senators Group, which is now the largest group in the Senate, the CSG or the Canadian Senators Group, which is led by my Alberta friend and colleague, Scott, Senator Scott Tannis, the PSG or the Progressive Senators Group, and finally, the Conservatives, who are now the only non-independent caucus as of today, they have just 16 members, 16 party-affiliated senators out of a total of 105. But when it came to Bill C-7, the Conservatives were also unwhipped and voting freely. 
They were deeply divided between their classic libertarian members who didn't think Bill C-7 went far enough and their social conservative members who felt it went way too far. If you think the Senate is a vestigial organ like the appendix, a useless and anachronistic constitutional appendage that you can safely ignore until it becomes inflamed and infected, I would invite you, I would implore you to read the transcripts of our C7 debate. Powerful, thoughtful, passionate, nonpartisan speeches from all moral, cultural, and legal perspectives as senators from every corner of the chamber made sophisticated constitutional and ethical arguments often drawing on very personal family experiences. By that time, we had two new senators among us, two constitutional law experts, Judith Keating and Brent Cotter, who had been the deputy ministers of justice in their home provinces of New Brunswick and Saskatchewan, respectively. But we were also best to have among our number four gifted physicians. Rosemary Moody, a pediatrician and neonatologist from the world-famous Toronto Hospital for Sick Children, where she worked with many families dealing with end-of-life decisions for their infants. Marie-Françoise Mégy, a professor of family medicine who spent seven years working as the medical director of a palliative care center that she herself helped to found. Mohamed Iqbal Ravalia, a former assistant dean of medicine at Memorial University and a longtime rural family physician. And Stan Kutcher, the former head of psychiatry at Dalhousie University, an expert in suicide prevention and the treatment of depression. The original bill included an absolute ban on medical aid in dying for people with psychiatric or psychogenic illnesses. And after much very passionate debate, we agreed as a group that a blanket ban on that type of, of that type was a violation of the quality rights contained in section 15 of the charter and a policy which ran directly counter to the Carter decision. Then we passed an even more provocative amendment, one that provided for advanced directives for people who might fear their eventual loss of capacity to request made. The amendment was introduced by Pamela Wallen of the Canadian Senators Group, and I spoke passionately in support of it. And both Senator Wallen and I drew on our tragic experiences caring for mothers with Alzheimer's to ground our comments. Neither of us thought the amendment would stand. We thought we were simply putting our personal stories on the record. But to our surprise, and I think our delight, the amendment passed 47 to 28 with eight abstentions. Maybe that had to do with Senate demographics. But I also wonder how many senators voted with their hearts on the assumption that the amendment would not pass. Uh, did it sort of pass by accident? Well, maybe. I, however, prefer to say that it passed organically. We sent our improved version of C7 with several other amendments besides back to the House of Commons. The government was, uh, how shall I say it, not happy. This was not what they had wanted us to do. So they offered us a compromise. Instead of banning medical aid in dying to those suffering with serious mental illness, they agreed to a 24-month sunset clause, giving them a set amount of time to come up with a made regime for psychiatric and psychogenic illness, one that would not lead to the exploitation of people who were vulnerable, suicidal, or in the grips of temporary depression. And they agreed to strike a committee to study the issue of advanced directives, a promise they're still in the process of keeping, but one where we're very much holding their feet to the fire. My point? Legislation is not written by one guy with a pen. There is no magic wizard in Ottawa who is the author of a new law. The parliament isn't one person. And in our reformed Senate, 
Complicated bills that engage with the Constitution and the Charter are debated and amended and rewritten all the time. In this era of extraordinary political polarization and divisive online disinformation campaigns, I receive hundreds of emails a day from angry and frightened people who firmly believe that Canada has already become a dictatorship where one prime minister can erase charter rights. Our bicameral parliament and our constitutional monarchy are replete with fail-safes and redundancies and checks and balances to prevent just that. I am fond of the French phrase for a new bill, projet de loi, a project. A new law is a project and a group project at that. Most recently, the Senate has been in the spotlight, albeit briefly, due to our debate on the government's invocation of the Emergencies Act. The speeches, again, came from every corner of the Senate and covered almost every imaginable issue from a huge range of perspectives, with many senators from all four groups articulating their deep ambivalence about the decision to invoke the act in these difficult circumstances. We debated steadily for two days, for more than 14 hours, until we were abruptly interrupted by the news that the government was revoking the powers of the act. Now, part of me was relieved that such a decision wasn't going to fall on my shoulders and on our chamber. But there was, if I'm honest, also a strange sense of anticlimax, even disappointment that we'd been made sort of redundant. On Twitter, I likened it to doing all the preparation for a colonoscopy, only to have it canceled at the last minute. But maybe for a legal audience, it's better to say that it was like being a jury or a judge sitting through a whole trial, only to find out that the two sides had negotiated a plea or a deal before you had to decide. I saw Twitter and Facebook and even conventional media reports filled with somewhat imaginative speculation that the prime minister only lifted the Emergencies Act because he feared it was about to go down to an embarrassing defeat in the Senate. However, having listened to and live tweeted the speeches of every senator who spoke, and knowing who was still left on the order paper, my well-informed best guess is that the motion would have passed. There would have been senators from all four groups who voted against it for a variety of reasons. But by the end of the day, I think the Senate still would have endorsed the motion. How lucky we were during that debate to have amongst us in the Senate that week remarkable colleagues, such as Senator Bev Bussum, a lawyer who was the first female officer in the RCMP and the first woman to serve as RCMP commissioner. Senator Gwen Boniface, a lawyer and a former commissioner of the OPP, who's also worked for the United Nations as an expert in transnational organized crime. Vern White, the former chief of the Ottawa police. And David Arnott, a former Crown prosecutor, a former judge, and the former chief commissioner of the Saskatchewan Human Rights Commission. And yeah, I'm name dropping again both because I'm so inspired to sit in the Senate with such remarkable colleagues, but also because cynicism about the Senate is so pervasive, so toxic, and so tired. It's based on outdated grievances that don't take into consideration the radical transformation the Senate has undergone in the last five years. I want you to understand how remarkable my Senate colleagues truly are. The decisions of the Senate are not based on academic articles about legal theory. They aren't dictated by the government or the House of Commons, and they aren't predicated on party loyalty. They are based on the combination of the expertise and lived experiences of the senators in the chamber. When we analyze charter statements, when we ask if proposed laws can pass the Oaks test, or if they are saved by section one of the charter, we are applying the law, not as legal theologians, but as practical pragmatists looking for workable compromises. 
We meet these days in the old Ottawa railway station. It's been totally renovated, but our new Senate of Canada building is the safe, same, self-same building where the Constitution and the Charter were hammered out 40 years ago. And we take those responsibilities as the guardians of those documents seriously. I don't believe in fate. I don't believe there is a divinity that shapes our ends, but I am intrigued, even excited, by the random accidents of history and by the accretions of chance that gave us the constitution we have today. If Ramsay MacDonald hadn't won his minority election and appointed Lord Sankey, equality for women would have taken much longer in Canada and we wouldn't have a living tree principle at all and the fight for queer rights in this country might've been much longer and harder. If Peter Lougheed hadn't defeated Harry Strom and appointed his good friend Merv Leach as attorney general, we might not have had the repatriated constitution with its notwithstanding clause. If Pierre Trudeau hadn't married Margaret Sinclair, well, we might not have a reformed Senate. And without the extraordinary courage of ordinary citizen plaintiffs, such as Henrietta Muir Edwards, Leilani Muir, Delwyn Vreend, Gloria Taylor, and the whole Carter family, our living tree wouldn't be nearly so lush or vibrant. Maybe in some other mirror universe, some other quantum reality, some other timeline, Canada doesn't have this charter or this constitution at all. But on this 40th anniversary, we should take a moment to celebrate the happenstance and accident, as well as the hard work and vision that brought us here in our own particular version of the multiverse. Our old friend, Lord Sankey, was a man with a genius for metaphor. He was also the judge who gave us this line from one of his more famous criminal judgments. Throughout the web of the English criminal law, one golden thread is always to be seen, that it is the duty of the prosecution to prove the prisoner's guilt. So let me appropriate a meme from Baron Sankey. Throughout the web of Canadian constitutional law, one quick silver thread of coincidence is always to be seen, reminding us that our constitution is not a static monument nor holy relic to be venerated, but the homespun handiwork of hundreds of individual Canadians each committed to our experiment of democracy and diversity. Canada's coat of arms contains the following Latin motto, Desiridentis Melorium Patrium, which roughly translated means, they want a better country. I love that motto because it is so aspirational. It acknowledges the work we still must do together to make this country better. The text comes from Hebrews 11.16. But now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Again, I am not a religious person, and the New Testament is not my testament. Canada, though, is a work in progress, still far from heavenly. The Charter of Rights and the Constitution are testaments to our efforts to make this a better country, and a reminder that we are all of us, all of us as citizens, called to do our part and to do our best to make this a better country. Because the charter isn't an end, it's a beginning. And our tree is still growing, leaf by leaf, branch by branch. And all of us, all of us are its gardeners. Thank you, merci, and hi hi. And that was the conclusion of the 2002 Leach Lecture in Constitutional Law. 
My thanks again to Dean Barbara Billingsley of the University of Alberta Law School and Dean Ian Holloway of the University of Calgary School of Law for inviting me to give this year's lecture and for allowing us to turn it into this podcast. My thanks also to the Lawheed and Leach families whose generosity and leadership makes this lecture series possible. But while that was the end of my prepared remarks, the lecture was followed by a provocative question and answer period which you can hear in episode three of our Leech Lecture podcast series. Alberta Unbound is produced and edited by Caitlin Cummings, and the Leech Lectures were produced by Yvonne Kuster and Peter Desmond Daw, with technical operations and sound recording by Tim Young. I'm Paula Simons. See you soon for episode three, where I'm on the hot seat.